your child may be taking in enough calories, enough protein, enough carbs, enough fats to be able to physically grow. Meaning when you bring them into the pediatrician, they're saying, oh, yep, they're still on the growth chart, still growing, that's great. But your child may not be taking in enough of the key nutrients, which includes our macronutrients, our fats, our proteins, our carbs, and micronutrients in the way of vitamins and minerals that not only allow for the basic physical growth, but actually allow for optimizing all of the functions within the brain and the body. Hey there, my friend. This is Dr. Anthony Balduzzi, and I want to welcome you back to another episode here on the Fit Father Project and the Fit Mother Project podcast. Today, I am joined by a special guest, Dr. Nicole Birkins, who is a leading holistic child psychologist with advanced degrees in nutrition, psychology, and education. And today's episode is basically all about how we can raise healthier kids that flourish physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. And Dr. Nicole is an expert in this. In fact, she's had a 25-year career providing parents with research-based strategies that get to the root of children's attention, anxiety, mood, and behavior challenges so they can reach their highest potential. She's a mother herself of four kids, and she is a multidisciplinary researcher, and she runs a treatment clinic in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And this is probably one of my personal favorite guest experts we've had on in a while because Dr. Nicole basically just drops valuable gold, if you will, bombs, nuggets of information about how we can help our kids eat healthier. And we really dive into the connection between the foods that we feed our kids and ultimately their kind of behaviors and how will they flourish. And she cites some crazy stats. I think one of them is like today's kids have 63% of their calories from ultra-refined foods. And so that's wild, right? We know that there's a huge interplay between the foods that we eat, how we ultimately feel, not just with ourselves, but our kids' experiences as well. And in this conversation, Dr. Nicole basically breaks down some very simple strategies that you can deploy in your family to help your kids eat healthier even if they're picky eaters, even if they're teenagers that are out of the house and skip breakfast all the time. She has strategies for all of this because of her deep clinical work and all of the research. So I think you're going to find this very valuable. I certainly did. And that's why I'm so excited to bring you today's episode. And I want to urge you to listen to this. And I also want to urge you to give me a little bit of grace with my own vocal cords today. It has been a heck of a week recording a lot of different types of content, and I have a little bit of the sniffles. So I have this kind of raspy voice tone, which you won't hear too much because Dr. Nicole is just basically spitting fire this whole episode. So you'll be really listening mostly to her. But just want to let you know if you're like, hey, Dr. A sounds a little bit funky today. Yes, I do. I absolutely do. And I will get back to resting my voice and you can get to look forward to this amazing episode. So tune in right now. I'll see you in the episode, my friend. All right, Dr. Nicole, thanks so much for being here today. I'm really excited for our conversation. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. 
So this is going to be a fun one because I think our audience here at Fit Father Project and Fit Mother Project is like the perfect audience for you to be sharing so much value with because you have such a broad swath of expertise, both as a holistic child psychologist, but also as a nutritionist and scientific advisor. So in this conversation, I want to cover a wide landscape of stuff. Like how can parents help their kids eat healthier? How can we help our kids work through anxiety and develop and flourish? And also what it's like to be the parent on the other side trying to help and support. We're going to cover a ton of stuff. But before we get into that, I would love for you to share a little bit about you, about how you got started into this work, maybe a little bit about your family, and just so everyone knows how amazing you are and you can connect with our audience a little bit. Yeah, my story has taken a a lot of twists and turns. I'm not one of those people who uh, right out of the gate with college graduated and then my career took a straight line path. I've, I've taken twists and turns really as I've seen needs in the kids and families that I've been working with. So my career actually started in education. A lot of people don't know that about me. I was a teacher well before I was a psychologist or any of these other things. And I was working with kids with pretty significant learning challenges, emotional and behavioral disorders in the school system. And I loved that work and I was really good at it. And I was, you know, making a lot of impact with kids during the school day. But I had parents saying to me, well, what do we do with them the rest of the time? Like we're struggling. We don't have resources. We don't know how to manage these behaviors. We're not sure how to best support our kids. And it really got me passionate about taking more of a family approach to it. And it's what led me to go back to school and get my doctorate in clinical psychology focused on uh, children, teens, and young adults, because I really wanted to help families be able to navigate from the point of first having concerns about their kids all the way through the evaluation process and then the treatment process. And so I do have a doctorate in clinical psychology around the same time as I was pursuing all that, I started having kids of my own. So uh, I think it's important for listeners to know I am a mom myself. I actually have four kids. They're older now. Uh, My kids currently are 15, 18, 20, and 22. So I've been at this parenting game on the personal side for a long time, almost the same amount of time that I've been doing this professionally. Um, and it's really, there's been a lot of intersection between my personal uh, life with my kids and my professional work. You know, I was doing the clinical psychology thing, started my own private practice, have a clinic focused on evaluation and treatment from a family-based and, and parent-focused sort of approach. And as I was working with kids and with families, I started to see these commonalities of, yes, they're coming in to see me because of concerns in the realm of mental health, behavior, development. But there were all of these patterns of these kids having a lot of the same physiological and medical histories. Okay, you're bringing your child in because of attention concerns. You know, the teacher's saying they're not learning well or they're having behaviors at home. But also you're telling me that your child has a history of chronic ear infections, lots of antibiotic use, so your child's been constipated their whole life, your child doesn't sleep, or there, you know, all of these histories of, of physiological things. And I started realizing that, you know, I don't think this is a coincidence. And at the same time, I was seeing in my own children, my two younger ones, um, some issues with eczema, chronic ear infections, chronic tonsillitis, and also seeing them having some challenges in the emotional and behavioral realm. And it led me to really dig into the research around that. It was not something I had learned about in uh, my master's program, certainly not undergrad, not even my doctoral program. And I was really surprised to find um, a pretty significant body of research literature around the connection between physical health and mental health for kids and adults, particularly issues around nutrition and food, sleep, um, physical activity, those kinds of things. 
And that really led me to become passionate about taking what I call a more holistic approach to working with children and their needs and working with families and recognizing that what's going on in the brain and behaviorally for your child is completely connected to what's going on in the realm of physical health and health in the family system. I went back and got a master's of science in nutrition and integrative health just because I wanted to understand more of the detailed biochemistry and all of those pieces from the nutrition and lifestyle angle. And that's really what I bring to my work today is all of those pieces of my winding history and various degrees and uh, you know research and my own personal experience with that as a, as a parent you know it's easy to be a professional who tells parents well here are the 16 things you need to do and you need to change to help your child it's another thing to actually try to do them and so I bring that personal piece of I know what it's like to be in the trenches with kids I know what it's like to try to change the diet for your family I know what it's like to deal with the very real challenges of managing screen time and school and all of these pieces with kids. And so that's what I bring to my work, both clinically. I don't see too many patients anymore, although do still carry a caseload of some patients myself. But most of my time is spent doing education of professionals in the fields of medicine and mental health and the realm of education. And then working uh, you know, with, with parents, doing teaching of parents, doing writing, all of those pieces, so that every parent is empowered around understanding the things that are really going on when their kids are struggling and what changes are going to be helpful. So we can delve into all that, but that's sort of my path of what's brought me to this point. Yeah, it's a beautiful background. And do you believe, first off, that this will be the future of how psychologists are approaching their work from this holistic angle and even bringing in nutrition? Um, I certainly hope so. And even beyond hope, it's where the field needs to go. We're seeing mental health, and even medicine more broadly. The fact that we even categorize it as like the fields of medicine and mental health is ridiculous. It's as if the brain and the body aren't connected, which we just know is dumb, but that's still how we talk about it. But both fields more broadly are slowly moving in this direction of recognizing that the very isolated and rigid diagnostic way that we've approached symptoms and health problems, both mentally and physically for people isn't getting us where we need to be. And we know that because the rates of people, children and adults with chronic mental illness, chronic physical illness continues to rise, despite the fact that more people have access to healthcare and mental health services than ever before. So that tells us that something in how we're approaching this isn't really getting to the root of what's going on. And it requires us to look beyond what's been the mainstay of mental health practice, at least in this country and broadly around the world for many years now, which is get some cognitive behavior therapy, get some, some kind of you know counseling therapy on board, um, and then take some medication. That's been the mainstay of mental health treatment for children and adults. And what we're seeing is more and more research evidence and just anecdotal evidence in people's lives every day, that those two things alone are not hitting the mark and helping most people to improve and live healthy, happy, functional lives. And so that requires us as a profession to step back and say, what else needs to happen here? What are we missing? And I think there's more of us asking those questions. And this is the direction that the field has to go if we're actually going to help more people get better. Nice. I mean, and that makes total sense to me. 
Now, from the perspective of a parent who's listening to this and has the sense that their kid could be a little more optimized, you know, they, they could be having better nutrition, better sleep habits. Where do they start? Is there a hierarchy of importance of things to really focus on when we do have circadian rhythm and sleep, nutrition, amount of physical activity? Where does a parent start if they're looking to help their kid thrive? Yeah, it's a great question. I think we start by recognizing that children today are growing up in a world that is far less compatible with children's brains and their brain and body development than the world that we and previous generations grew up in. And that's an important starting point because it's very easy to say, what's wrong with kids today? I mean, I think sort of every generation asks that question. Like, what's wrong with kids today? But really, like, we we can legitimately, we should be legitimately asking that question when we have rapidly escalating rates of chronic disease and chronic illness um, in children that we did not see even 20 years ago. And so it does beg the question, what's going on with kids today? And it's very easy to say there's something wrong with kids. My perspective, I'm not the only one who thinks this, and there's research evidence to back this up, is that it's not an issue of what's happening on an individual level with kids today. What's happening is we have continued to create a world that operates at a pace that has expectations, that has toxic inputs at a level that previous generations of children didn't have to contend with. And when you put developing brains and bodies in the world that we've created today with all of these toxic inputs, and I'm talking about toxic from the standpoint of physical toxicity as well as emotional and mental toxicity, and a world that is operating at a faster and faster pace with greater and greater expectations, more and more stress on parents, adults, and children, what you're going to get is children who look like they're having a lot of problems. And it's simply because the gap between what we're expecting children to be able to do, what we're expecting their brains and their bodies to be able to handle is not compatible with actually what we know about child development, child brain growth, and child resilience. And so it's that gap then that creates the situation where we go, well, gosh, we've got 54% of children with one or more chronic illnesses. We've got 12% of U.S school-age children diagnosed or medicated for ADHD. We've got, you know, escalating rates of anxiety, depression, autism spectrum disorder, ADHD, you name it. We are seeing children exhibiting symptoms of all of these disorders and diagnoses at a rate that we've never seen before. And it's because, in my opinion, of this gap. And so when we understand that and we can frame it in that way, Then it opens up the possibility of us as parents saying, okay, what can we do to help close that gap? How can we create more inputs into our kids' lives on a physical, mental, relational, environmental basis that support where they are in terms of their brain development, their brain function, their overall development and wellness to help close that gap a bit? Where do we need to be doing work on ourselves? as adults 
to recalibrate our expectations, to better understand where our kids are, what's going on, and how we can relate to and communicate with them in a way that better supports their development and therefore better supports their mental wellness, their physical wellness. So when we understand it in this way, it opens up a lot of possibilities for us to actually say, there's lots of things that we control here that we can better leverage to support health and wellness for our kids, as opposed to, unfortunately, what's happening out there now, which is we're just kind of screwed, right? Like, an escal- 75% of kids, you know, endure symptoms of depression and anxiety, you know, suicides, the, the leading cause of death in young people. We've got autism. We've got ADHD rising at these rates. Like, oh, there's nothing we can do. Um, actually, there's a tremendous amount that we can do when we understand root causes of these things and, and then take action on those. First off, I want to say that was beautifully said, the way of looking at the demands on modern kids of toxic inputs, assessing what we as parents can do, the inputs that are more in our control to help build more resilient kids. And it kind of like begs the first question, and one I've been really interested in asking you, is nutrition seems like it's a foundational input here because our bodies are ultimately built up from that which we consume and it dynamically affects our neurochemistry as well as you know everything in our bodies. And, and the thing with kids though is they're not necessarily the ones directing this, right? You know, maybe school lunches and stuff like this are out of their control, what parents feed them. So when you think about nutrition from your perspective, how should parents approach it? And we can get into specific foods and nutrients as well, if that's very relevant to the conversation, but like, how do we start to feed our kids better to be one good input that we maybe do have some control over to help close the gap a little bit? This is a, such an important foundation. And it's also one that is shrouded in a whole lot of uh, guilt, um, negativity, stress, difficult emotions on the adult side of things. Because when we start talking about, you know, changing the way we eat or the importance of nutrient-dense food for kids or feeding kids differently, there tends to be a tremendous amount of defensiveness on the part of parents and adults. Oh, one more thing you want me to do. Oh, you're blaming me, you know, all of this. So I want to be clear from the outset, whether we're talking about nutrition or any of the other things we're going to talk about today, this is not about a blame game. This is not about saying that you as a parent are doing things wrong, that you are causing your children to have problems. It's not about that. So let's try to let that go. Let's be aware of how we may be triggered for a whole lot of reasons that have to do with our growing up, our experiences as kids, our experiences now as adults. Let's try to set that aside and recognize, okay, that's why I may be feeling defensive or hesitant about exploring this. And let's just try to get curious about why this is an important thing to think about. Because on a very scientific, just basic factual level, this inherently makes sense that what kids are eating, what we are putting in their bodies has everything to do with how they're developing, how their brain is wiring up, and ultimately how they're functioning. There just isn't a way of getting around that. And unfortunately, that very basic foundation has been removed from so much of what gets talked about 
whether we're bringing our kids to the pediatrician for their, you know, well checks, or we're bringing our children, you know, to a mental health professional because of behavioral or learning concerns or whatever it might be, this very foundational piece has been left out of the conversation. And the general stance that parents hear from the medical and mental health profession is, well, as long as your child is physically growing and staying on the growth chart, then they're eating fine. And that's not something that we need to think about which completely makes no sense when we understand, as you stated, that the food that kids are taking in, and this goes for adults too, but we're talking about kids here, literally contains the building blocks for the brain and body to work with to be able to grow and function. And so your child may be taking in enough calories, enough protein, enough carbs, enough fats, to be able to physically grow. Meaning when you bring them into the pediatrician, they're saying, oh, yep, they're still on the growth chart, still growing, that's great. But your child may not be taking in enough of the key nutrients, which includes our macronutrients, our fats, our proteins, our carbs, and micronutrients in the way of vitamins and minerals that not only allow for the basic physical growth, but actually allow for optimizing all of the functions within the brain and the body. And that's where the problem lies for many of the kids that I'm seeing in my practice today. They're taking in food that's allowing them to physically grow. However, they're not taking in what they need for their brain to be able to form and utilize the neurotransmitters that allow for regulated mood and anxiety, that allow them to think clearly and focus, that allow them to sleep properly. They're not taking in enough of the nutrients that are needed to allow the body's processes to run well. So they're not detoxing well, or they're having other, you know, they're having hormone related issues or whatever it might be. So there's a difference between feeding our kids in a way that just allows them to physically grow and feeding them in a way that actually allows their brain and body to grow and function as they're intended to. And that's where we have the gap right now. And so what you need to understand about that is, you know, a recent study came out and the data was gathered before COVID. I believe the data in this, this was a large scale study in the US. I think it was collected in 2018, but the study was just recently published. So this was pre-COVID. And it showed that on average, the average child in the U.S. um, obtains 68% of their food intake is in the category of what we call ultra-processed foods. Ultra-processed foods are foods that are not how we find food in nature. They are packaged goods that contain a lot of added chemicals, added sugars, um, Things that are not what we call nutrient dense, meaning these foods are actually quite nutrient poor. They will provide, you know, the basics. They'll provide calories. They'll provide glucose for sure. Um, they provide simple carbs, but they're not nutrient dense from the standpoint of providing the wide range of macro and micronutrients that, um, that bodies need. So when we think about, okay, on average, of a child's diet is ultra-processed foods. And we understand that nutrients provide the literal building blocks for a child's brain and body to grow and function properly. You see right there that we have a problem because the majority of most kids' diets do not contain 
the information and the building blocks that are needed. And so it is not a surprise then that we have many more children struggling with focus and attention, struggling with impulsivity and hyperactivity, struggling with regulating their emotional and behavioral responses. This is what we would expect, struggling with sensory processing issues. Sensory processing requires very, very complicated wiring up of lots of integrated parts of the brain so that kids can take in and make sense of input from the world around them. If you're not providing the basic building blocks that allow the brain to wire up in that complicated, integrated way, of course your child is going to struggle with various aspects of sensory processing. And we're seeing that at rampant levels in children today. So this then becomes the issue of, okay, we can continue feeding kids highly ultra-processed diets, but we're going to continue to get on the other end kids who are struggling with their development, with their learning, with their emotions, with their behavior. That is not to say that food intake and and nutrient density alone uh, prevents these issues. But it is saying that this plays a pivotal and foundational role in allowing kids' brains and bodies to function properly. And even if a child is still, for reasons of uh, you know, genetic predisposition, environmental challenges, whatever, going to have some of these symptoms and these issues, all of the treatments and things that we would do from a psychological and behavioral standpoint are going to work a lot better when we layer them on a foundation of nutritional input, a diet, food intake that supports their brain and body in working better. So to me, this is essential that we have this conversation and and it's a broader conversation even than food. We can talk about, you know, supplementation. We're talking about nutrient intake and there's lots of ways to accomplish that. And so if you're a parent thinking, this is going to take a long time. Like I'm hearing you, I realize that changing my child's diet would be important, but I have a super picky eater or I have a kid diagnosed with a feeding disorder or I have a kid with extreme sensory processing issues or I am co-parenting with a parenting partner who is completely not on the same page. There can be lots of barriers to feeding kids differently. And so we start with some basic changes that you as the parent can control. And that piece may be slow. We can use supplementation and targeted nutrient supplementation in the meantime to help fill in some of these gaps. But if you have a child who's struggling in one or more areas, this is an area you need to look at. And unfortunately, is probably not something that's being talked about by your mainstream medical and mental health providers. It's not being talked about by the school. But this is not just my opinion. And this is something I really need people to hear loud and clear. Oh, Dr. Nicole, that's so nice that you think food makes a difference. And yeah, maybe, okay, uh, that's your opinion. Um, this actually wasn't my opinion. I, I actually had no idea about any of this until I delved into the scientific literature around this. This is not just my opinion. This is based in what the scientific research tells us on two levels about child development and mental health in general, and also around specific disorders and symptoms in the realm of mental health for children, teens, and young adults. Both. There's, we have research literature on both on how changing the diet, improving 
nutrient density, using targeted supplements supports all kids in general and how we can use that specifically to support kids with certain diagnoses or or certain specific challenges. So what I'm sharing with you is not just my idea or opinion. It's grounded in what the research shows. And the problem is that it takes a long time in the field of medicine and mental health for the practice to catch up to research. So we've had all this research for a long time, but practice is very slow to shift. And when we're talking about nutrition in particular, again, there's so many barriers even on the adult side that that it can be tricky, but it is something we need to talk about. And, And Anthony, what I love about the work that you do with parents is you focus on something critically important actually for helping children, which is when we're talking about making changes for the sake of kids and improving mental and physical health for kids, that actually doesn't start with kids. It starts with us as the adults. And that is the really uncomfortable thing for us too, right? It's like, oh, this actually means if I want to improve my kids' behavior, if I want to improve my kids' nutrient status, if I want to improve these things for my kids, that requires that I take a good look in the mirror and start with myself. And that's why I think the work you're doing around this is so important because we cannot help children make changes in these areas until and unless we are willing to examine this and make these changes for ourselves. Yeah, I mean, totally, 100% on board with that. And I want to say another powerful answer. I want to bring this down into a little more of like the granular Because one fundamental premise you shared is that we want to get nutrient density into our kids' bodies, which means not just calorie needs that will support physical growth, but the nutrient-dense foods. And not all foods are created equal. There's a big difference between maybe eating an egg and eating a Pop-Tart for breakfast. So let's get into not what parents should feed their kids because it's unique for every individual parent, but what they could feed their kids for a couple of the main meals. What are some nutrient-dense foods that would be good? And I'm thinking of parents at all different kinds of stages. A lot of parents may be waking up and making their kids breakfast. Some parents may have high school and teenage kids that just leave the house without getting anything and they stop at like a Starbucks and get a coffee on the way out the door, right? And I think we have a little bit of these touch points with our kids with at least breakfast and perhaps a healthy shared family dinner where we have can exert some influence. So what would be some nutrient-dense foods and options that you think are are solid. And then I want to go into talk about if we can't make that happen, some specific supplementation that may be helpful. But let's start with maybe breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and just give some practical, simple ideas. Let's start with, yeah, let's start with food. And, And before even breaking down into the meals, let me give a couple of foundational starting points because this can feel so overwhelming to people. People go, oh my gosh, you're asking me to cook, shop differently, like I can't do this, and then we shut down to it. So let me just share a couple of basic starting points that can really start to shift things in a positive direction. And the one, and this applies to every meal, every snack, everything in your home, is to make the shift towards water as the primary beverage that is consumed in your home. Now, you may say, that sounds like the stupidest thing I've ever heard, that's too simple to do anything. And this is part of it too. We think this has to be complex. Let me tell you why shifting to water is so important. Because the vast majority of children, water is not their primary beverage. They are drinking fruit juices. They are drinking milks. They are drinking, some of them, soda pops. 
sports drinks and other drinks that even nowadays it gets trickier because they're marketed as being healthier options, but they're full of problematic things. If you just did one thing for your kids and your family around the nutrition piece, and that is shift either immediately or slowly over time to watering down those fruit juices to help your child build a palate for less sweet beverages. You don't have to go cold turkey all at once. Just start progressively adding a little more water into that to dilute it so that their palate and their sensory system adjusts to less sweet taste. Get rid of the fruit juices. Here's why. It's sugar. The fact that it says fruit can be deceiving, but from the standpoint of what actually fuels the brain and the body long-term in nutrient density, we don't want that in there. It's adding a lot of sugar and not a lot of other benefit for your child. So water the juices down and slowly phase them out. You can add whole fruit to water. You can add fun ice cubes. You can use fun straws. Let them pick out a fun water bottle. I've got videos and articles on my website about how to get your kids drinking more water. It really doesn't need to be that complicated. We can make it more interesting for them. It really comes down to us as the adults saying, this is important and so this is what we're doing and modeling ourselves. You cannot tell your kid that they need to drink more water when they see you with the big gulp diet Coke or drinking coffee all day long. And believe me, I'm a coffee lover, like drink your coffee. But when, when you're clearly not consuming water as your primary beverage, your kid is not going to do that no matter how many times you tell them they need to. Get rid of the milks. There's a whole fallacy of thinking around the fact that children require milk of some sort, cow's milk in particular. It's filled with sugar, Obviously, I defer to your pediatrician for your child's unique physical growth needs, particularly if you have a child who is not on the growth chart. This is a nuanced conversation, but in general, children coming into my clinic are deriving a whole lot of calories and fluid intake from cow's milk, especially flavored cow's milks at school. You know, Those strawberry and chocolate milks, those cartons of strawberry and chocolate milk that your kid's consuming at school have as much sugar as the same number of ounces of soda pop. Something to think about. And sugar is problematic for lots of reasons, but one of them is that it displaces more nutrient density. So the more calories that are coming from sugar, the less calories are coming from something that's actually useful for your child's brain and body. So phase out the milk or at least get rid of some of it. Get rid of soda pop. To me, if you are looking at supporting your child's brain and body, soda pop should not be something that is regularly in your home. If you want to do that occasionally, whatever, okay. But it should not be something that is on the grocery list. It should not be something that is in your refrigerator on a regular basis for a lot of reasons. And there's research behind that. So move towards water. And what that does is it provides proper hydration. It's not filling your kids up with empty calories that then make it harder to get them to have an appetite for eating the food you want them to be eating. So it helps in that way. And it reduces the amount of added sugars in the diet. So that's one of the foundational things to do. And the other piece with sugar that is foundational is to start being aware of and reducing the amount of added sugar in your child's diet. You can find that on the labels. Now, if a food doesn't have a label, then it's a whole food and you don't need to worry about added sugars. 
strawberries, apples, all of those things have natural sugar. Not worried about those things. Feed your kids those things. But if it's a product with a label, it's required to show total amount of sugar and the total amount of added sugar. That's what the research shows us we really want to start scaling back on. The target goal based on the research and based on clinical recommendations from many different pediatric health associations is no more than 25 grams a day of added sugar for children 2 to 18. Now, 2 to 18 is a broad range. Some associations have uh, you know, different um, ranges of added sugar for different ages within that. But in general, you want to stick to 25 grams of sugar or less a day, added sugar. Now, you might be thinking, 25, that sounds like a lot. Well, when you think about the fact that most breakfast cereals that kids are eating easily have 12 to 20 grams of added sugar, it's pretty easy for a lot of kids to hit that 25 grams of added sugar just with breakfast. A lot of the snacks, even things that are marketed as healthier options, when you look at the amount, the number of grams of added sugar, you go, oh my gosh, this protein bar that I've been sending with my kid to school for their you know, snack, it's 15 grams of added sugar in it. Yeah, it adds up. And again, why that's important is because sugar is not nutrient dense. Sugar then fills kids up and makes it harder to get more nutrient dense foods in them. Sugar also creates this blood sugar roller coaster for them where they're having sugar spikes and crashes that is very difficult then to have stable mood, focus, attention, all of those pieces. So keeping stable blood sugar is key and reducing added sugars is an important part of that. So it's just, you don't have to go to your pantry and throw everything away all at once. This is awareness first of looking at the labels and saying, boy, on average, how many grams of added sugar do I think I'm taking in each day? Do I think my kids are? And you make some swaps. So if there's fruit snacks, for example, that your kids are eating on a very regular basis, it's a snack they like, and you look at that box and you go, wow, you know, these have, you know, 16 grams of added sugar per pack. Then you say, next time I'm at the store, I'm going to look at the options and I'm going to try to find something that has fewer grams of added sugar. It's not that you take fruit snacks away. It's that you say, how can I make a swap here that reduces this added sugar burden? And that's how you start to make these shifts. So I focus on swaps first. And then the piece that you want to add in more of is making fruits and vegetables more central and accessible to your kids. Snacks are a good place to do this. I don't want parents in power struggles with their kids at every meal and every snack. You don't need to. You can say, you know, snacks are not something that kids need for growth. So snacks are a good place to experiment with some things. And you say the choices are, you know, carrots with peanut butter or I've got grapes today. Well, I don't want that. I want that. You say, well, that's fine. These are the choices. Again, this is not in the setting of a kid with a clinical feeding disorder, which is a very small percentage of the population, but I just want to be like, you know, clear about that. But for the vast majority of kids, you start offering more of these things, leave them out on the table or the counter, cut off fruits and vegetables, have them in the fridge, make them accessible, let kids see you reaching for those things throughout the day. And that's how you start to push in some of those more nutrient-dense things. And the reason I focus on fruits and veggies is because the data is so clear that the vast majority of children, at least in the U.S., 
have very low intake of fruits and vegetables, and that's problematic for all kinds of reasons. But when we're talking about getting nutrients in them, fruits and vegetables are an important piece of that. So those are the foundations. So then if you think about how do I take that into the setting of meals, you think, well, on a very basic level, I'm just going to serve water as the beverage with meals. That's where I'm going to start. I even tried changing the food initially. I'm going to start, you know, if I, if I feel like I can't, for whatever reason, stop with the Pop-Tarts right away, I'm going to serve a side of fruit with that. Or I'm going to pair that with some protein and say, I made some scrambled eggs for myself. I put a few on your plate, you know, to have with your Pop-Tart. You can start pushing some of these things in. You can start having a fruit and a vegetable at each meal, regardless of whether your kids initially are eating them or not. You start making it part of the food landscape of what meals look like in your home. And when you start exposing kids to these things more, that's the biggest component of them getting more comfortable and eventually starting to explore and eat those things. When you're thinking about meals, you think about how can I reduce the sugar burden here. So can I, for example, make the mashed potatoes from scratch, which just involves boiling the potatoes, maybe adding some butter and whatever kind of milk or liquid you're going to do instead of using the boxed version or the version that I bought from the deli, which when I look at the ingredient panel actually has a lot of added sugars and other chemicals. What you make at home with those mashed potatoes is going to be a more nutrient-dense option. Um, can I find chicken tenders for my kid to take in their lunchbox because I know they'll eat those that don't have a lot of added sugar? So the, you, when you start with just these three fundamental sort of ideas, making produce more accessible, reducing the amount of added sugars, and shifting to water as the beverage, you start looking at how can I work those three pieces into the meals that I'm serving. And that I think is a good way to do it as opposed to thinking about, well, now I need a bunch of recipes for lunch. and What am I going to serve? It's like, let me look at how I normally do things and just start to keep these three things in mind as I move through the day with meal planning and meal prep. Does that make sense? Totally makes sense. And it was really cool how you approached that answer because that's like the process of actually implementing this change and it's small stuff. It's not taking away it's swaps and substitutions. And I will say this, Dr. Nicole, for everyone listening to this, they're very likely in our fit father or fit mother program. So they're very privy to these principles. Now, I also do want to give people a little bit of an ideal to strive for. Um, and and I'll, I'll interject some of my thoughts too on like what an ideal breakfast may be. And I'm going to say it's probably similar to the stuff that our fit fathers and fit mothers are eating. So this might be like eggs and some fruit. This could be like overnight oatmeal with a bunch of nuts, seeds, hemp seeds, good stuff in there. And maybe even if you have kids that are a little older and like these things, like a made from scratch protein smoothie that has like, you know, good fruits and other things in there with some protein powder, but like kids can eat these things too. Is that, is that correct in saying that? Absolutely. Protein is what you want to prioritize in the morning for children. The data is clear about this. It sets, especially if you have children struggling with mood, anxiety, uh, attention kinds of issues, it primes the brain for better focus in school, for better blood sugar stabilization, which then allows for that regulated mood and stress level. So we want to prime them with protein, especially on school days. 
So absolutely, all the things that you shared there. I also think that in America, especially, and I'm sure you know you address this in, in your program with the moms and dads, we have a very strange idea of what is breakfast food. You know, breakfast food in America is cereals, it's pastries, it's these things. When you go to Europe, for example, their breakfasts look a lot more savory and a lot more like what we think of as lunch. Um, and so I, I help parents get out of that sort of rigid box of what we think of as breakfast. Some kids that I work with do great with um, breakfast for them is leftovers from dinner the night before. That's That actually sets them up for the best day in school. So think outside the box with that. Yes, now there's more available in terms of, you know, nutrient dense or protein heavy breakfasty foods. You can find the muffins and the, you know, those things. But really what you're talking about there is so true. Protein is where we want to go. The other thing that I'll comment on, just because this can be a misconception where children are concerned, especially for parents who are health conscious and learning a lot about diet changes and things for themselves. It's important to remember that children are not miniature adults, not physiologically or mentally. So some of the advice and some of the things from a research standpoint that we advise for adults, which is really somebody over the age of young adulthood, 21 or even, you know, 25, depending. Once kids have stopped growing, okay, now, now they're adults and the world of adult nutrition research and advice applies. When we're talking about children through young adults who are still in their growing years, it's important to understand that a few things are different. One is you have to recalibrate your idea of portion size. Sometimes I'll have parents who are very health conscious and very food conscious for themselves be like, my kid's not eating enough. And I'm like, listen, (laughs) when we say like a fist is a good protein serving, The fist of your two-year-old is very different than your fist at 40. You have to bear that in mind. So if you're getting into power struggles and things over my kid's not eating enough or you need to be eating more of this, back up and realize that kids' bodies, their stomachs, their digestive system is smaller. They have lower requirements. So just bear that in mind. If they're not eating the same amount that you are eating, or taking in the same amount of protein or whatever, that's actually okay. So just to relax about that. The other thing is when we talk about research-based dietary approaches for adults, um, it's pretty clear for most people that we do want to minimize the role of carbs and sugars, or we want to not make carbs the priority. For children, they do need carbs. They need carbs to grow. And so where I see, again, some people very focused on the health and wellness world and all of that, making a mistake is I've got my whole family on a ketogenic diet or we're doing a low-carb paleo focus. Okay, that may be real appropriate and helpful for you as an adult. That is going to quickly become problematic for a child. Sometimes it is medically necessary for us to put kids on a ketogenic diet for intractable seizures or a low-carb or very specifically regulated diet for a GI issue or some kind of other issue they're having. That should only be done in the context of working with a professional who understands how to do that type of diet for a growing child. In general, we need to understand that kids need carbs. So while your breakfast, you may focus on like 
you know, maybe just a ton of protein and, and fat and like, oh, I'm not doing carbs. We do want to make sure that for our meals and snacks, we do have nutrient dense carbs in place for kids. Um, most kids need uh, some grains, nutrient dense grains. Again, there's a difference between wonder white bread on their sandwich and whole grain nutrient dense bread. But to understand that children who are in those growing years and even through the young adult years, the teen years especially, they do need different macros. They do need carbohydrates. So the goal is not to get rid of those. And so I just think that's, that's important to think about. So when you think about putting a plate together for breakfast, yeah, we've got some eggs. Maybe we've got some whole grain you know, toast with real butter on it, if they can tolerate dairy, or maybe we do, you know, whole grain toast with nut butter. That's been a mainstay at my house as my kids have gotten older in the teen years. You know, they want to sleep in until the last minute before they have to get out the door. Okay, what can we do quick? Can we make up on Sunday nights some homemade protein bars or energy balls or something like that, that they can grab and go where I'm like, okay, these are nutrient dense. We've got a good amount of protein, healthy carbs in here, some good fats, but sometimes just whole grain toast with nut butter. That's great. Or maybe it's heating up a few sausages, right? Heating up a few sausages and then grabbing some fruit and apple on the way out the door. Great. I would be thrilled if every teenager in America would just, you know, have a microwavable nutrient dense sausage patty, preferably homemade. But if it's packaged, then doesn't have a lot of added sugar, fine. And grabbed an apple or a banana on their way out the door. Is that ideal? No. But here's what's important to remember. We aren't shooting for ideal. We're shooting for improvement. We're shooting for better than what they might normally do, which is skipping breakfast which is very problematic for kids, or grabbing something sugary, right? So you don't need to aim for optimal. And I'm telling you this as someone who is licensed and board certified and does this nutrition work for a living and also operates in the real world with four teens and young adults in my house. We're shooting for better. We're not aiming for best here. So don't let perfectionism with this stuff be the enemy of good enough and just starting to make some of these shifts. Amazing advice for sure. And I think some people listening here who are members of our programs will know that we're big advocates to make things practical of using a high quality bread, like Ezekiel bread, sprouted organic bread. And like a lot of people are making Ezekiel bread sandwiches. That could probably be one of the best things your kids could have for lunch, honestly. I mean, you're getting fiber, you're getting protein, stuff like this. It's toasted Ezekiel bread. You spread a little avocado on that thing, maybe even put an egg on that. Like that doesn't take a long time, but that's powerful or even the sausage. And then the thing about the carbs for kids, I think fruit is kind of the answer. I mean, obviously a lot of dinners do end up having some kind of grain with them, whether it's a rice or pasta or something like that. They can have that for sure. And then the fruit can fill in some of those carbohydrate targets really well. So that's awesome. Okay. Yeah. And I think too, like sometimes when even parents in your program, because you get tremendous results with people and, and I, you know, work with some families where the parents have made some incredible changes for themselves. And then you look at what the kids are eating and you're like, where is the disconnect here? And they go, I'm a short order cook for my kids because it's too hard. I don't know how to make these changes. I'm tired of arguing with them. So would it be helpful for me to just share a couple tidbits around that? Because I think you may have parents in your community dealing with that. They're like, I'm doing this for myself. For sure. I know this stuff, but I can't quite bridge the gap. Okay. Here's a couple things. First of all, you do not need to be a short order cook. 
If your child has a diagnosed feeding disorder, that's a separate issue. But everyone else, it's important to make whatever meal you are making, and this is what's served. Now, the trick to that is to always have something on the table that your kid will eat. So if you're making this amazing like salmon, you know, with spinach and this beautiful dinner for yourself, that's what the family is eating. That's what's on the table. You say, well, my kid won't eat that. Okay, but your kid eats strawberries. So you have cut up strawberries in a bowl as one of the side dishes. That will be the thing. You put it all, you know, you say, we put all this on our plate. Not a full serving if they're not going to eat it. Don't waste it. But you say, we take some of each of this. You don't have to eat it. They will eat the strawberries. Great. You always have something they will eat, but you get out of this mode of, well, you're not going to fight about chicken nuggets, so I'm going to make this for you, and this one won't fight about buttered noodles, so I make buttered noodles for him. And meanwhile, we're sitting here as the adults eating this beautiful, nutrient-dense meal and feeling sad about our kids eating chicken nuggets and buttered noodles. We don't know what to do. Listen, stop the short order cooking. This is what is for the meal, and I will always make sure there's something on the table that you will eat. That's the exposure piece. It, number one, sets the expectation. It gets you out of this catering to what it is that they think they want and the only thing they think they'll eat. And it gets them exposed to the smells, the sights, the tastes, the textures of all the other foods that you want them eating. So that's really key is... Stop the short order cooking. Make sure there's something that they will eat. Stop arguing and negotiating about it. You just say, this is what we're eating, but I don't want it. I don't like you say, I understand. I respect and accept how you feel. You don't have to like it. And in fact, you don't have to eat it. But I'm also not going to then 30 minutes after the meal, when you're crying for a snack and want the popsicles and whatever, I'll say, hey, you know, Dinner's still in the fridge. Happy to heat that up for you. These are some of the ways that we need to start playing more of a leadership role in our families and with our kids around shifting some of these things. When kids are in narrow, rigid, unhealthy eating patterns, it's because we have not dealt with our issues around our discomfort with them feeling uncomfortable. I don't like it. You're mean. This, I don't And then we feel uncomfortable and we feel like a bad parent because our kid is unhappy. That dynamic is at the root of most of the problems that parents face with their kids, but particularly when it comes to food. So if that's happening for you, just be aware of that. Start to, you know, untangle that, untangle that for yourself. But that is really key. And exposure here is key. Not all at once, but exposure. So you said Ezekiel bread. And I'm like, that's a, it's a perfect solution. And probably 75% of parents easily, even listening to this to be like, my kid won't eat that on their sandwich. Okay. Start with what they will eat. And so you start saying, Hey, I made the bread that you're used to. And I also made half a slice of this. (laughs) Hey, I'm going to start making your sandwich with one slice of bread of what you're used to. And one slice of this, I'm going to make toasted bread squares with different dips. And half of those little squares that I've cut up are going to be the white bread you're used to and half are going to be this. And look, I made some dips for you. We have nut butter dip, we have avocado dip, and you start exposing and slowly shifting. But what you don't do is say, my kid doesn't like that or he says he won't eat it and therefore I can't make the change. 
you say, okay, this is going to be a challenge. How do I start to make this shift? Not, well, I give up because, you know, he's unhappy about it. And, and that mindset around this is really what I see either makes or breaks families moving in uh, a more nutrient dense direction with food. Another amazing answer, a truly. And I, I'm almost thinking like there's the parent side of the psychology around that setting the boundaries, always being sure you're tactically serving something someone can have um, and slowly making the swaps and exposure being the goal. And then I think there's also the kids having a growth or fixed mindset around food. I think a lot of kids think they don't like things, but they actually would if they were to try it and it was prepared in a certain way. So that's the dance we have here. And I think your tips have been amazing. I want to talk a little bit about some of the supplementation and key nutrients. Like when it comes to mind for me, if I were to like guess a couple, like you definitely want your kids to have a quality vitamin D3 status, which is a combination of sunshine and perhaps supplementation in certain instances. I'm also thinking for young kids, like get them some choline or something to help the neurotransmitter growth. What are some key nutrients that parents can do or even just general supplements that you think are nice fail-safes and catch-alls? to help with the micronutrient needs because we're not always necessarily getting these from food. We do the best we can. Yeah, it's it's an important conversation because even under the best of circumstances with the most nutrient-dense diet, even with food, you're growing yourself. Soils are depleted. Like we just know food today is not as nutrient-dense as it was. So when we look at what the research shows about kids and what nutrients are supportive to them, there's a few things that I encourage for all children if we're interested in just supporting and optimizing their growth and development. A good quality multivitamin it is sort of a fail-safe. Now, there's lots of debate out there around, do we really need multis or not? Here's the thing. When we're looking at kids, we don't want to overload them with supplements because they'll develop real power struggle, a lot of them around that. And we're looking to fill in the gaps. Now, a good, when I say good quality multivitamin, I'm talking about the, I'm not talking about the Flintstone vitamin you're finding on the shelf at CVS or your grocery store. That is not a quality multivitamin. Please don't give those to your kids. That's like a sugar pill, actually. But a good quality multivitamin covers your, at least your basic recommended daily allowances of micronutrients. This is particularly important if you have a picky eater. If you have a child with a feeding disorder where their intake is quite limited, or just you know your child's not eating a great diet, this at least fills in and provides a, a base foundation. So you're looking at products that do not have very much added sugar. Be wary of the gummies. A lot of those have a lot of added sugar, but you're just covering your bases. Beyond that, vitamin D is a big one. The data bears this out. If you live in a sunny environment where most of the year your child can get good sun exposure and they are outside taking advantage of it, then you may not need to supplement with vitamin D. When you live in a part of the country where I do, you know, in Grand Rapids, Michigan, where we're gray at least six months out of the year, supplementation is important. And that supplementation can vary from, you know, 400 units for babies um, and toddlers up to a couple thousand units, depending on your child's, you know, blood work and their status as they get older. If your child has mental health challenges, developmental challenges, checking that status is really important because the data is clear around the connection between vitamin D3 status and many mental health and behavioral symptoms in kids. So that's an important one. Omega-3 fatty acid. 
This is probably the one where we have the most data on brain development in children and where kids are not getting enough by and large. Um, Most children have very high omega-6 status because omega-6 fats tend to be what's in a lot of the processed foods they're eating. But omega-3 fats, particularly DHA for developing children, is critical for brain development. It's literally the fat that is necessary for brain cells and for the myelination of nerves, for allowing proper wiring up of the brain and proper neurotransmitter utilization and function within the brain. So we've got clear studies on how depleted levels of omega-3 fatty acids, particularly DHA, lead to very significant brain problems for kids. Again, we can use supplements for this in infants all the way up through young adults, I think omega-3s make sense for kids in general. I think therapeutic high doses of omega-3 make a lot of sense for kids diagnosed with any type of neurodevelopmental or mental health condition. The data is clear about that. And then the other one that I think about is magnesium because most adults and children have suboptimal levels of magnesium. And magnesium plays a role in so many brain and body processes, and especially in a world where stress and anxiety are at an all-time high for kids and adults. Magnesium becomes an important thing to look at. There's different forms of that depending on what the needs are, but I do think that's one to look at. So those are sort of my general, you know, zinc is important. You mentioned choline, phytonutrients. There's so many things that are important, but if we're talking about just the basics, the other thing that I will spotlight here which is not something that you want to be supplementing for your child without getting lab work, but it does warrant spotlighting iron status for your child. Iron status is one of the most underappreciated, underleveraged things that we can look at for kids who are struggling in the realm of mental and behavioral health and, and learning any type of neurodevelopmental or mental health issue. The research is so clear about this, and yet almost never do I have a kid or teen present to my clinic with a history of symptoms where someone has even checked their iron status. Kids with even suboptimal iron status, they don't even have to be anemic, just suboptimal iron status creates major problems for brain development, for learning, for behavioral regulation, for sleep. So if your kid is struggling with any type of symptom, ask your child's primary care physician to um, run an iron panel, not just the little finger stick they do in the office, but an iron panel to look at serum ferritin, to look at iron saturation, to look at their broad iron level. This is really important because it's such low hanging fruit. Mm -hmm. I can't tell you the number of kids I see who present with symptoms of ADHD. That's why they're coming into the clinic. Upon taking a thorough history, we discovered that they aren't sleeping well. And when we dig into that and run some basic labs, we discovered that they're anemic or have suboptimal levels of iron. When we treat the iron problem with supplementation and perhaps some dietary changes, but primarily the easiest way to bring that up is through supplementation, Guess what happens? They start sleeping the way that they're supposed to. And then guess what happens? Their symptoms of ADHD dramatically go down or go away. Not my opinion. We have the studies to back this up. So 
Do not start supplementing your child with iron. If it's in your kid's multi, that's fine. That level's not going to harm them. But do not start supplementing with standalone iron supplements without blood work. But please do know that that is a very basic, low-hanging fruit thing to look at if you're having concerns about your child. That is what they say, a clinical pearl, if you will. So to check the iron status, and, and maybe while you're doing that as well, get a vitamin D3 a serum test for your kid. Like there's good labs to check on your kids and awesome. Just amazing across the board. So much insight here. And I'll say this about the kids multis too. The ones that I see typically have the good RDA meeting of your B's, your C. Oftentimes they have at least half, if not all of your zinc, but they're typically low in magnesium. You don't really find too many multis that are low in mag. So I'm just thinking practically, if you gave a morning multi that tastes good. And maybe they even have gummies that are lower sugar varieties. There's a lot of products out there. And then the evening could be a good time to give them the magnesium supplementation. They also have gummies there too. And look also, I'd say for a multi that has the omega-3s in them, if you're going to give them one thing, the DHA in there is a possibility. They're really good. Totally. There's powder too. Like powder options are becoming much more. I mean, here's what's interesting. We have an entire like world of adults now that refuse to swallow pills, which is a whole nother conversation. But because of that, manufacturers have gone to um, more uh, like dissolvable or powder or gummy options. You just want to watch the added sugars and the additives, but those powders can be great options for kids because you can mix them. Um, there's great magnesiums available that way. And yeah, the reason that mag isn't usually in multis for kids or adults at any type of level that we would want it to be is just because magnesium is a bulky mineral. If you ever, if you take magnesium capsules yourself, you know that they're fairly big, really hard to get any kind of decent amount of that in, in a, a pill form, uh, in a multi. So you're absolutely right. Like taking that separate. And especially if your child struggles with bowel issues, if you have a kid who tends towards constipation, a magnesium citrate formula covers not only getting the magnesium that they need, but also uh, helps move their bowels. And so a lot of times when we're talking about these targeted nutrients, we can hit multiple targets with one nutrient. And, and the fish oil piece, I'll say too, a lot of parents balk, they're like, they have conjures up images of like their mom chasing them around with like cod liver oil on a spoon or whatever. Look, we've come a long way with that now. There are beautiful formulations out there. I use them with kids every single day where even if they're not able to swallow the larger fish oil gel capsules, there are a lot of liquid options. There are ways to work on getting this in kids. I've got several articles um, on my website about how to get more omega-3s in your kids through diet and through supplementation. Um, so just know that it is possible and, and that the world of nutritional supplements has uh, evolved in a lot of ways since, you know, when, well, certainly since I was a kid, you know, 40 plus years ago. So yeah. Yeah. The options are here for us with a little bit of knowledge and planning. I think you laid out something that was super approachable today. Like everyone can, I'm sure, I definitely am, see a few optimizations that can be made, a few things to try, the right way to approach it. So this, thank you first off. This was really cool. And you're also very great at explaining this, which makes it super enjoyable. Cannot believe an hour has already gone by. I know. I'm like, oh my gosh, we didn't even get into screen time or sleep or any well, of the well, other things. Sure. But anyway. I mean, there's no <laughs> doubt if you're willing, I would love to have you come back because I had one of my notes that I wanted to talk about screen time, anxiety in particular, especially kids in this kind of like post-COVID world, right? There's a lot to be unpacked. 
But from this conversation, if someone's really interested in learning more, and I recommend they also join your email list and stuff like that, where can people go? Where would you like to direct them that they can learn more and dive even deeper into your work? Sure. Thank you. So my website is drberkins.com, D-R-B-E-U-R-K-E-N-S.com. I've got tons of articles, videos, handouts, all kinds of things that you can access there. Um, That's also where my podcast, The Better Behavior Show, is housed. If you're interested in all these kinds of topics around kids, that's what my podcast covers. Um, You can also find The Better Behavior Show on your favorite podcast player. And on social, I tend to hang out most on Instagram. That's really where the bulk of my community is. It's at Dr. Nicole Birkins. I'm also on Facebook, but come hang out with us on on Instagram if you're on social. And then my book for parents, which is several years old now, but still very applicable, is called Life Will Get Better. And you can find that wherever books are sold. That's amazing. And we'll have links to all this as well in the show notes description, whether you're watching this on one of our websites with the blog page or just on like Apple or Spotify or whatever, we'll have links to everything. So Dr. Nicole, Thank you so much. This was amazing. And I would like to get a verbal confirmation for you that you'll come back and tell us more like that. You'll come back on the show if you're open to it and talk about some of the other, maybe more like mental, emotional side, behavioral side of this stuff as well as circadian rhythm. So love that. And thank you so much. Absolutely. You've got my promise. I will come back anytime you want to have me. Happy to have these conversations with you for sure. Thank you. Hey there, my friend. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode of the Fit Mother Project podcast. If you love what you heard, I have a favor to ask you. Please consider taking 60 seconds right now to leave us a rating and review on our podcast. Leaving us a review is super quick. It only takes a minute and it's so, so helpful to us as it really boosts this podcast to reach more people who need this information and this message. If you're listening on Apple podcast, you can leave us a star rating and review. If you're watching on YouTube, you can hit the like button and leave us a comment. Overall, I truly appreciate you being with us here on the podcast. On behalf of me and my entire Fit Mother Project team, we truly feel honored and grateful to support you and your family on your journey to fantastic health. I thank you for your support of this podcast and of this mission. Also, if you're interested in joining our complete Fit Mother program and becoming an official member of our community, you can visit our website, fitmotherproject.com. And on the Fit Mother site, you'll be able to see our complete Fit Mother program along with our online store with the best supplements designed for busy moms. And you'll also find a ton of free resources like recipes, workouts, meal plans, and more. God bless you and your family. This is Dr. Anthony Balduzzi signing off. I'll catch you on the next episodes of the Fit Mother Project podcast.